reading this morning is from uh, Genesis 6, Keep continuing in our series. We're going to start in verse 11. We will skip a little bit. Uh, I may add a verse or two back in. That was my fault. I got a little too aggressive paring down uh, what's printed in your bulletin. But uh, the story of the flood is a, a pretty long one. It covers almost four chapters. So, uh, so follow along as you can. If not, just listen. So Genesis 6, starting in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth and destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the, into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. We're going to skip the actual action of the flood itself and pick up in chapter 8, verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Well, let's pray, because we need the Spirit to help us. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would, by your Spirit, open our ears, open our hearts to receive your Word, so that even in a passage on judgment, we would see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. We ask in his name, amen. Well, it is uh, Judgment Day this morning at Two Rivers. We're going to talk about judgment. Uh, which is a tough subject to talk about. Because on the one hand, we tell people, we say all the time, don't judge me. On the other hand, of course, uh, we judge people all the time. And uh, probably everybody's had the experience of posting something on social media and gotten blasted. Or being chastised for not posting things that they should have posted goes back and forth, round and round. And Christians, of course, in particular, are known 
rightly and wrongly at times, for being judgmental. Uh, there was an old Seinfeld episode where Elaine, one of the main characters, is dating a guy named Putty, David Putty, and uh, she discovers he's a Christian. And then they have a big argument about this, and uh, she's like, you should be trying to save my soul. And he's like, you're bossy, and that's why you're going to hell. And uh, they end up sitting in front of a priest, who I guess is David's priest, and, uh, and he says, the priest says, so let me see if I understand this. You're concerned that he isn't concerned that you're going to hell, and you feel she's too bossy. And they're like, that's right. Well, oftentimes in the cases of interfaith marriages, couples have difficulty, and Elaine cuts them off and says, oh, no one's married here. We're just, you know, having a good time. And the priest says, well, then it's simple. You're both going to hell. I think that kind of sums up the way most people view Christians and our ideas about God's judgment. So uh, we'll probably need to deconstruct a little bit of that along the way this morning. At least do what we can in a few minutes that we have. We'll think about the purpose of judgment. Start there. Then we'll think about the shape of judgment. And then we'll think about deliverance from it. So it's purpose, it's shape, and then what deliverance is. So this whole story of the flood begins really with the passage we looked at last week. Last week was the summary at the beginning of chapter 6 of history, you know, from the fall until the flood. It it was a kind of summary we saw of, of violence spreading on the earth. And this, in verse 6, or um, verse 5 of chapter 6, it says, God saw that every inclination of the, man's heart was only evil all the time. That was the summary, the takeaway. In other words, it was a tale of evil spiraling out of control, unchecked. Uh, Violence in particular was highlighted as it is in this passage, in verse 11, where we started. God highlights violence. In fact, it says that the whole world is poisoned by it. And, you know, obviously there's 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 a particular image, right, of blood being spilled on the ground. That, that is playing on, but it's also much bigger than that, right? That is an image that implies something more profound, right? That, that the more violent your community is, the more toxic it is. And we know this. That does, that's not a mystery to us, right? There are neighborhoods in our city that are poisoned by violence. There are cities that are known that have reputations of being violent places. There are whole countries at times that are known for violence. And what's, one of the things that's interesting along the way here is that God describes in verses 11, uh, 12, 13, that the world is full of corruption. And the Hebrew word there, shahat, it's got that guttural thing in it, um, that, that, that word for corruption is not just that people want bad things. It's, it's actually the word to destroy. God's, in other words, it, it may be a little masked here in the, in the translation, but it's saying that the earth was destroyed in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. One of the things we've been talking about as we've talked about sin and its growth is that sin is a, a matter of the heart that is directed at God But here is the deal. It never stays in the heart. 
It starts there, the root is there, but it always does work its way out in practical ways to affect others, to change us. It never stays in the hypothetical. In fact, in the ancient Near East, there, are a bunch of, there were a bunch of stories told of a flood in the ancient past. Actually, worldwide, there's plenty of cultures that have these ancient stories of a flood. But certainly within the ancient Near Eastern context, all of them were seen as judgments for sin. Now, what we have here, of course, is God's you know, authoritative version. <laughs> but this idea that sin, that evil, spreads easily and needs to be kept in check was not a mystery in the ancient world, just as it shouldn't be a mystery to us. See, the problem is we, when we talk about judgment, we, th- we act as if we sometimes say that that's a kind of arcane view of God. Who would want a God that judges? Sometimes we refer to it as the Old Testament God, although that kind of characterization is pretty foolish since Jesus talks a lot about judgment. But we will talk about God that way, as if why would he do that, right? We take offense as it were, of the idea that God is somehow judge, although the irony is that it is regimes that have been explicitly atheistic throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century that while they have denied God the ability to judge, they have taken more and more right to judge and enact violence on themselves. They have presumed, right, in the absence of the knowledge that somebody who can and should judge, in the absence of that, it's put on our shoulders, isn't it? And that's a scary prospect, indeed. Sometimes we take, we take objection to certain things the Bible talks about. I think most people think, okay, we don't, it's probably not great if we have a society where people are lying all the time or murdering, but we do take exceptions to other things. We take exception in particular in our own age, right, to the sexual ethics in the Bible. Uh, we take, but that has looked different in different times, different places. There are other places where the prohibitions against violence are, are seen as maybe being not quite the way it should be. Whatever the case is, we sometimes object to those. But either way, what we have seen now, what we see now in American culture, is not the anything-goes relativism that people used to fear would happen. Now, you must take sides. You see, because God isn't going to intervene, we've got to fight for our own moral position. Indeed, this is part of what animates the venom in our politics, right? is because we have to grab hold of that power so that our vision for the world will win out. So you see, when, while we may think it's arcane that God would judge, the vacuum that kicking God out leaves makes us even more judgmental ourselves. And you can feel it. That if you have, you know what it's like to be in a room and someone expresses opinion, an opinion, and you feel like, boy, if I tell them that I see this a little differently, 
the whole place might erupt, right? Like, I might not make it out alive. Maybe not physically, but you know your reputation will be damaged. You know you're going to get yelled at. Look, in the pressure, honestly, the younger you are, the greater the pressure is to conform to a particular opinion. Uh, You can see it on social media, the pressure to hold to a certain viewpoint or not. And that, again, depends maybe on your friend group. But we're all scared of airing our opinions, not because boy, it's a better place where we don't think about God judging. Instead, we know we're judged every minute of every day. And the solace of God being the judge is not only that we don't have to demand perfect judgment from others and those in power, but also the knowledge that when we are wronged, that isn't lost. It actually helps us deal with the storm of others' judgments. Those times we, don't, we know that we may not find certain things righted in this life. But God is attentive. God is not losing track. All ancient cultures held out this hope. Most contemporary cultures still hold out this hope. It is the delusion of the late Western mindset that thinks we can live without this. And uh, one theologian, a guy named Miroslav Volf, he was, he's a Croatian. He lived through the uh, Yugoslavian wars. When Yugoslavia fell apart, he saw an immense amount of violence, and this is what he says. He says, Should not a loving God be patient and keep luring the perpetrator into goodness? This is exactly what God does. God suffers the evildoers through history as God suffers them on the cross. But the day of reckoning must come, not because God is too eager to pull the trigger, but because every day of patience in a world of violence means more violence. And every postponement of vindication means letting insult accompany injury. You see, the hard question, the thing is we want God to judge, we just don't want God to judge us. We need a judge. We just don't want to be judged. So that's the purpose of judgment, is to set the world right. So what is the shape of it? And here the story, as you know it, even in a children's Bible, is pretty helpful to understand. So in verse 13 and verse 17, we heard the word destroy, and guess what? That is the same word that God had talked about and used to describe the destruction we had wreaked on the earth. Shahat. Destruction. So God is bringing on the earth what we have already reaped. It's reciprocal. In fact, what you see is described here, there are a bunch of, a bunch of different ways in which you start to see that the description of what's going to go on is a kind of decreation. 
Did you notice the attention to the same kind of language that we found at the very beginning in the creation story about all the birds of the air and the animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth? It echoes back to, the, the, to Genesis 1, to the very story of creation. And the rising of the waters is like the land being pushed back in. You know, as God had separated the waters and created land, it's being pushed back in. The waters are collapsing, and of course the rain, it's all, it's all it's the heavens and the, and the waters below coming back together. The whole image is as if creation is beginning to work backwards. God is bringing it, God is decreating. If I can make up a word. He's decreating. In judgment, if you are going to make this mess of what I made, then I can unmake it. And so, for 40 days, you know the story, for 40 days and 40 nights it rains, which sounds awful, especially on a boat, stuck with a bunch of animals. I mean, the smell on the ark, right? I mean, it just must have been unbelievable. Uh, but 40 days is a, is a telling number of days. I mean, this is the first time it occurs. But later, in what we see clearly as that kind of time frame comes up again and again in the Bible, is that this is a time of testing. Uh, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai for 40 days. And the people are tested to wait for him. It does not go well. Uh, then they have to wander for 40 years in the desert. Uh, it does go well. For Jesus, when he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, uh, he actually does well in the test. But regardless, right, you, the, there's, all, there's this, what we see going on here is that God is in kind decreating the earth. If they're going to destroy it, he will decreate it. But he will bring through his redemption. We'll see that more about that in a minute. It's worth noting, by the way, as we tell the story, there are a host of questions that I don't have answers to. You know, a lot of geologists say that there's not evidence for this. Some say there is, a minority. Uh, Others have argued that the term for the land can describe a region, doesn't necessarily need to involve the whole earth, although it's certainly described covering all the mountains, so I don't know how that would work. From an engineering standpoint, people have questioned if a 440-foot-long wooden boat could actually hold up uh, under the strain of all, you know, the different forces on it. I have no idea about engineering. I was an English major. Don't ask me. What I do know (laughs) is that God is intervening. So exactly whatever the answers are to all those questions, and this is, again, one of those tough passages where we're kind of looking at a lot of different things from different angles, and it's hard to know what the answers are to them. What I do know is God is intervening here. This is God intervening in judgment, and it is him intervening miraculously in redemption. Uh, so that's just kind of an aside, but the point is he's intervening, right? This is his judgment on the world. And we do see a theme over and over and over again in the Bible that God gives over, part of, part of what judgment is, is God giving people over to what they're really asking for. 
I'm not saying what they want. Nobody, of course, wants to be judged. I think we've established that clearly. Uh, We don't want to be judged, but the kinds of things that we actually deserve. God gives us over to that. So you, at the the very beginning of the book of Judges, in chapter 2, verse 14, there's a summary. Chapter 2 is summarizing this pattern that repeats over and over again in Judges, where the people lose their way, God gives them over to their sin, and enemies come in, and then they call out to God, and they're redeemed. But it uses that language of giving them over to sin. Psalm 106.41 does the same thing. It talks about being given over to our sin. It comes up in the New Testament. Stephen, right before he's stoned in his famous sermon near the end, talks about Israel being given over in its sin. And, of course, famously at the beginning of Romans, chapter 1, when Paul starts to talk about sin and God's judgment, he uses this language again, being given over, given over. And the way C.S. Lewis describes it in The Great Divorce He says, there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God's passive. I'm not saying he's just letting things run their course. What I am saying is, in his judgment, he's giving what we deserve. It is, this is what we deserve if we're going to act selfishly, destructively. Of course, in the end, you know, the very end of judgment is hell. And the defining feature of hell is not the fire. It's not the poking tridents. It's none of that. The defining feature of hell is being cut off from God and His love which is the very heart of what sin is, right? Turning away from Him. You see, we are our own problem. Uh, In the very first season of the show The Twilight Zone in 1960, uh, it's actually a pretty well-known episode. You know, every episode of The Twilight Zone was sort of a separate story. And uh, there's one called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And uh, you, it's on Netflix. You can go watch it. Although I'm going to spoil it. It's 60 years old, so I feel like that's okay. But the, it, it, the, the story starts, you know, the Twilight Zone. You get the, the music and all that. And uh, it starts us off looking at this place called Maple Street, which is just some sort of anonymous white suburb in 1960, you know, uh, uh, every, you know, everything kind of looks nice. The kids are all playing outside. And it's getting to late afternoon, early evening, and then some strange lights go overhead. And everybody's wondering what that was. It just passed overhead. Nobody knows. But then suspicious things start happening. The, the lights go out. The power goes out everywhere. Nobody can start an engine to a car. Uh, not, you know, nothing, nothing works. The telephones don't work. Although a couple things start to happen. What power pops on on some guy's house, somebody's car starts, and all this suspicion starts to arise. There's obviously in the background of this the kind of Cold War, uh, McCarthy era kind of suspicion about communism. Uh, Some kid comes up and is like, this is exactly what happened in my sci-fi novel when the aliens took over. 
Uh, well, all these weird things are happening, and over the course of this episode, by the end, the neighborhood has devolved into violence, and it cuts back, and you see two figures that are presumably aliens of some sort, and one of them says, the first one says, you understand the procedure now? You just stop a few of their machines and radios and telephones and lawnmowers, throw them into darkness for a few hours, and you just sit back and watch the pattern. And one of them says, is the pattern always the same? And he says, with few variations, they pick the most dangerous enemy they can find, and it's themselves. And then that's, <laughs> that's the end. Um, the Twilight Zone. We're a problem to ourselves, right? We've got to start to admit that. This is the hardest thing to swallow, uh, perhaps, about the message of the Bible, is that we are a problem to ourselves. And that the fruit of our hearts and the actions that they bring out are destructive. One of the Old Testament prophets, Hosea, says, you sow the wind, but you will, reap the wor- you will reap the whirlwind. And it's an image of you thought this was just some small thing you did. But the cumulative effect of it is massive. It's destructive. You sow the wind, but you will reap the whirlwind. In other words, the storm is coming. The storm is coming for what we've done. You see, the claim, and one thing to make really clear, a thing that Seinfeld didn't understand, the thing that, quite frankly, is often misunderstood within the church, is that the distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian is not about who is a better person. That is not the distinction. Indeed, many Christians misguidedly try to convince themselves that they are better people than their neighbors in and of themselves. It is not a question of whether someone is sowing the wind or not. We are all reaping the whirlwind. The question is where we will find shelter from the storm. The distinction is about those who look for shelter from God. That's the distinction. And the hard part is about being honest that we indeed need shelter. Now we can't provide it for ourselves. Which gets us to this deliverance. We talked last week, as we were thinking at the beginning of chapter 6, that the way God frames the coming judgment is not about his anger. Now, there is such a thing as God's anger, but it's rooted in his regret. It's rooted in his love for what he has made. And that is so essential to understand that God is judged because he loves. Because he actually cares about what is going on in this world. Now, I don't want to go back and preach that sermon again. But it's essential to understand that God is really invested in here. here. I mean, even in our own 
judicial system, which is deeply flawed. While we talk about wanting an impartial judge, we mean we want somebody that doesn't, isn't necessarily invested in the outcome of one party over another, but we actually want judges that are invested in society at large. I mean, that actually is supposed to be their job, right? It's to care about what's going on in society at large. And so we see that that is what God is about. And when God brings Noah and his family and these animals through this flood, what does he tell them as they leave? He, he, he reiterates what he told them at the beginning of creation. See, he had decreated, but now he is beginning anew. And he tells them in verse 17 to go out and be fruitful and multiply. All of you birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, just like I said back in Genesis 1, go be fruitful and multiply. God is interested in the world being full and flourishing. Not in being a place of death and destruction. That is God's desire, His deepest desire. And that's why He provides a way through. But there's one detail we didn't actually read. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 7, you find out that while God says bring animals two by two, you know the, you know the story. You've, it's told over and over and over again in our children's Bibles, things like that. If you read at the beginning of chapter 7, you find out, though, he tells them, but of the clean animals bring seven. Now, he doesn't explain what the clean animals are. We don't know what that even means until later when the sacrificial system is explained. And the point is, right, that he is going to need to make sacrifices because the deal is Noah is not saved because he's a good person. He is saved because God provides. He is saved because something else has stood in his place. The first thing he's going to do, and we'll read it next week, when he gets on dry land, is to build an altar and to give a sacrifice. You see, the shelter of the storm is provided out of God's love and ultimately, it is a sacrifice on God's behalf that God himself makes. See, the problem isn't fixed. We'll dig into this more next week. But people are still sinful. Now, for all the destruction of the flood, it does not root sin out. But Jesus says this in Matthew 24. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. See, the ark was sufficient to survive this flood. But something more indestructible is needed for the final judgment. But what God provides is not merely a vehicle to enter in, but a person. God enters in. God enters and intervenes in the story in order to give us shelter from the storm. A shelter that is indestructible. 
It is that Lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. It is Jesus taking the wrath of God on himself for us. See, God's judgment is not in contrast to his love. In God's love, yes, he judges what is evil. But in his love, he has also given himself on our behalf. The shelter from the storm is Jesus. The thing we really need is not just another wooden boat, is not just to win an election, is not just to have our family straightened out and looking good on the way to church on Sunday morning. The thing that we need is Jesus himself. And it is true that throughout the Bible you can feel sometimes the tension between God's love and justice, but where God proves that those things are not separated is at the cross. That is where God gives everything on our behalf. It is where we find that the, those of us who are imperfect, who are sinners deserving justice, can find what we need. I mentioned earlier that in the beginning of Romans, Paul talks about God's wrath, talks about judgment for sin. But the turn in Romans that he makes in chapter 3 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, as I say, apart from you and I doing good things, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we've established that but are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. As the gift. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just, that He might be a just judge, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus so that God can be both just and loving, receiving us because of what Jesus has done it's the very heart of the gospel. Is that God has given himself so that we would have shelter from the storm. This is not, sermons about judgment are just not the ones we want to hear about. We don't like that we have to reflect on ways in which we are guilt, guilty. We don't like having to confront the shame that that brings up. But Jesus is not ashamed of you. And in Jesus, your guilt is taken away. That is the shelter from the storm. So, what are you going to do with your guilt this morning? Are you going to ignore it? When the storm comes, are you going to try to put up some cheap cardboard, some cardboard righteousness to help block the wind and the rain? Or will you run to the shelter that's indestructible, that is always open to anyone who would come? Let's go to Christ. Father, we pray that you would remind us that your judgments are always good and they are always right and that even they come out of love. But more than that, 
that you've given us your Son, and that he was judged on our behalf, so that we might take shelter from what we deserve and be brought into life, the fullness, the flourishing in your presence. As we struggle with our guilt, as we struggle with our shame, remind us to bring all these to you and to find in Jesus open arms and a clean conscience and life everlasting. I ask in his name.